I have been in hell, or in search of prison knowledge, by Jeanie McPherson, from Movie Weekly, August nineteenth, nineteen twenty-two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I have been in hell. I have plumbed the utmost depths of human degradation. I have seen women's souls stripped stark naked. I have been face to face with humanity at its worst. And I have met the most perfect kindness and sympathy it has ever been my lot to experience. I have been in jail. I did not visit the jail as a privileged guest. I went as a criminal serving a sentence. I was arrested, charged with simple larceny, tried, convicted, and sentenced to ten days in prison. I served three days and three nights of that sentence, three depressing days and three horrible nights. I wore the prison garb and ate, or tried to eat, the prison fare. And I know from personal experience just what prison hysteria is. I am a scenario writer. Complete knowledge of my subject is a requisite of my work. It was in search of this knowledge that I went to prison. I found it. In the photoplay that I am writing for Cecil B. DeMille's production in the near future, the chief feminine character is sentenced to prison for manslaughter. Manslaughter is the title of the story. The girl goes to prison a selfish egotist. She emerges completely changed. In order that I might understand the influences at work on this character during her prison stay, I, too, went to jail. When I decided to make this experiment, I selected the Detroit House of Correction as the institution that would best serve my purpose. The name is a misnomer. It is not a reform school. Instead, it is a penitentiary, a penitentiary that has the unique distinction of housing Michigan's federal feminine offenders of every type of crime, state prisoners, county prisoners, and the city of Detroit's municipal prisoners, and doing all this in a fashion that compares favorably with the Middle Ages. There were several reasons for this choice. One was the sinister reputation of the institution. The second was that this is the only jail in the country where petty criminals are confined with those serving sentence for manslaughter. Another was that my family numbers among its friends, a man formerly prominent in the administration of the Detroit prison. This individual was the only person whom I took into my confidence. I wished to have his aid in securing my release should the experience become unbearable. With the exception of this man, no one connected with the experiment knew that I was not, in fact, Angel Brown. It was under this name that I operated when I stole a fur neck piece of nominal value from a woman of my family's acquaintance who was living at the Hotel Statler. She reported her loss to the house detective and I was arrested before I had left the building. Hailed into court, I gave my name as Angel Brown from San Francisco, and was charged with simple larceny. I pleaded guilty to the charge and was sentenced to a fine of $10 or the alternative of 10 days in the Detroit House of Correction. On my statement that I did not have the money to pay the fine, I was turned over to a police officer with instructions to commit me to jail. Just at this point, all my plans were threatened by a big, fatherly Irish policeman who was detailed to conduct me to the prison. On our way down to the alley where the patrol wagon was to meet us, he said, This is your first time up, isn't it, little girl? I assured him that it was. Isn't there anyone you know who will put up the money and keep you out of jail? There was no one, I declared. I hate to see you go to that place. You wait right here. 
and he pushed me through a door into a bare waiting room on the level with the jail alley. I think I know a man who will lend us the money. My heart sank. After all my trouble to get into jail, my plans were about to be frustrated by the kind heart of a well-meaning policeman. My good-natured policeman soon returned with failure written all over his kindly features. His friend was unable to help. There was nothing else to do but load me into the Black Mariah and send me on my way. He had no suspicion that I was thanking Providence for his failure. I arrived at the jail late in the afternoon. My guardian turned me over to the chief matron, who knew me only as a thief, and the iron bars figuratively and literally closed behind me. There followed the formality of booking me. My name and sentence were the outstanding facts noted by the matron's secretary, a trustee serving a long term. After this, I was stripped to the skin and searched for narcotics. They even took down my hair and made a painstaking examination of it. When it came to selecting my prison garb, I was allowed to choose between long and short-sleeved underwear. I chose the long, for it was December and cold. With it went the faded gingham coverall, prison-made and drab. Despite the coldness of the weather, this garment had short sleeves. I selected my footwear from a great pile of shoes that occupied one corner of the matron's office. My choice fell upon a pair of dirty, misshapen things that fitted approximately, and had been splashed with paint and whitewash at one time in the recent past. From the office I was conducted by the trustee to the cell assigned to me. It was on the second tier of the cell block, which consisted of four tiers of twenty cells each, accommodations for eighty prisoners. And at the time of my incarceration, the jail contained 140 women prisoners. Beds in the corridors supplied sleeping accommodations for those not assigned to cells. White and black, petty criminals and murderesses sleep, eat, and work side by side. The cell into which I was ushered was without a window, and measured approximately six feet in length, six feet in height, and not over five feet in width, with a barred door one and a half feet in width. Most of this room was occupied by my bunk bearing a straw mattress, blankets, and prison-made linen, but no pillow. This and a broken-down chair, tin washbasin and pitcher, and pail were the sole furnishings. I made my prison debut in the midst of the so-called recreation hour. This is the period in late afternoon when the girls, having finished a day's work in the shops, are permitted to wander about the corridor-like space that surrounds the cell block itself. This space is called the recreation room, although there is no semblance of recreation facilities, and was very cold. Two hard benches and a few straight kitchen chairs and one small table constituted the furnishings, and I saw no evidence of any books or literature. On the particular day that I arrived, the girls were in the chapel of the prison, viewing a motion picture. The picture was a cheap industrial film showing the making of a newspaper and the Panama Canal, badly made and badly photographed. I think a strapping Negro girl voiced the opinion of the majority when, at the conclusion of the picture, she said, My God, why don't they give us a love story once in a while? I had heard that clever crooks never talked or made intimates, and that the common criminals respected the mental superiority of those who could resist the temptation to gossip about anything and everything. I was relying on this fact to carry me safely through the shoals of cross-examination on the part of my cellmates. It was fortunate that I adopted this attitude. I had hardly returned to my cell before a delegation of curious visitors dropped in to find out all about me and to get the latest news from the outside. Everyone wanted to know, first of all, where I came from. 
every single one of them tremendously anxious to hear the news from their own hometown. Since I claimed San Francisco as my home, I disappointed them all, and it did disappoint them. One girl, speaking for herself, spoke for them all when she demanded, Hell, I thought you was from Flint. My refusal to talk won me immediate respect, and when it was nosed around that I had been caught working the Hotel Statler single-handed, I became a near heroine. The Statler detective system is known and feared by all criminals, I learned. My supposed consummate nerve won their respect. But if I kept silent, no one else did. Apparently, everybody talked all the time, calling loudly back and forth from cell to cell. It is part of the hysteria of the place. Speech relieves the tension that they are all under, consciously or unconsciously. Supper interrupted the cross-examination. We filed into the long dining room, and I faced my first prison meal. Long wooden tables and benches were the chief articles of furniture in this room. Someone, with a sense of humor, had posted a large sign at one end of the room commanding silence, but the babble of voices and the clatter of graniteware dishes continued at fever heat throughout every meal. Supper consisted of a greasy soup that had soured, two pieces of white bread without butter, a mug of some mysterious black liquid erroneously named coffee. I believe that I can eat any kind of food that is fit for human consumption, but there are limits, and this meal and its successors went beyond that limit. Supper over, we arose on signal from the presiding matron and filed back into our cells. As I entered mine, the door banged shut behind me and locked. Thus I began my first night in jail. For a time, the hysterical racket that had gone on steadily since my advent continued. When it subsided a little, I threw myself on the bunk and amused myself by analyzing my emotions of the day. Eventually I dropped into a fitful sleep. How long I slept I have no means of knowing, but it could not have been more than a few hours. I was awakened by a peculiar crawling sensation that meant but one thing, vermin. There was no more sleep for me that night. Wide-eyed, I sat on the edge of my bunk and prayed for daylight. I have heard and read much of the terrible feeling of being shut in, buried alive and suffocated, that prisoners undergo during their first night in prison, but until the time of my own experience, I believe it to be largely imaginative. It is not. It is the most real thing in the world. I felt that the walls of my tiny, windowless cell were slowly closing in on me. I could not breathe. The close air, heavy with a sickening disinfectant, seemed to strangle me. There are no words to picture the suffocating horror that envelops one at this time. Hysteria succeeds reason. I wanted to scream and beat my head against the stone walls of the cell, anything to push them away. Only one tiny portion of my brain remains rational. It was this tiny control center that kept me from going stark, staring mad, for the time at least. In spite of this semi-control, by four o'clock in the morning I was on the verge of panic, partly in an effort to relieve the tension and partly in search of information regarding prison routine. I feigned sickness and shouted for assistance. I succeeded in attracting the attention of a trustee who was detailed to nurse service. She made a sympathetic effort to diagnose my trouble, but she was unable to render any real assistance. At my insistence, she summoned the night matron and I told my troubles to her. She explained that the jail hospital was closed for the night, that the chief matron was the only one who could open my cell door, even for sickness, and that this lady could never be disturbed until she reached her office at nine o'clock in the morning. That meant if I was in danger of death, I could go ahead and die without medical aid before nine a.m. The night matron even refused me a piece of paper to fan myself with. 
Throughout my feigned illness, the neighboring prisoners kept up a perfect bombardment of encouragement and sympathy. The nurse trustee was infinitely sympathetic, but she was powerless to aid. This excitement served to combat the evil atmosphere of the night, but daylight seemed to be ages away, and it was not until we were released about eight for breakfast that I succeeded in ridding myself of the hysterical feeling. Sometime between eight and eight-thirty, at the discretion of the matron, we were freed from ourselves. En route to breakfast, we made our toilettes such as they were. Inasmuch as toothbrushes, toothpaste, combs, and soap were absolutely forbidden, this was an exceedingly sketchy affair. There were women in that prison who had not had a comb in their hair for months. They kept it in place with string, bits of hairpin, or anything else that could be adopted to the purpose. A trough into which all the prison filth is emptied by the prisoners, also en route to breakfast, does not add to one's grooming. From this service, we marched to the meal itself. Like its predecessor, it was inedible, as far as I was concerned at least. The same two pieces of bread, the same nameless black liquid, or the alternative of bluish-white milk, and a watery fluid in which a few grains of some cereal were floating made up the menu. I counted the cereal grains, I think they were rice, and found six in my dish. Breakfast over, we marched to the shops. We were set to work making cane and reed chair seats. In other departments of this same shop, brushes are made, and the prison tailoring shop turns out the prison clothes and linen. This work is done by the long-termers during work hours, although most of them eat and live together with the short-termers. At noon, we were marched back across the courtyard between the prison proper and the shop building for luncheon. White bread to the number of two slices, two slim weenies, sloppy cabbage, and the unbelievably bad coffee made up this repast. The weenies were a luxury. Usually, mealy-looking baked beans formed the main course of lunch. Meat was allowed once about every two days, I learned. The shops claimed our attention throughout the afternoon, although the total amount of work done was negligible. Any petty criminal who works earnestly in the shop is promptly reprimanded by her sisters. It sets a bad example and makes the prison authorities expect more of the other prisoners. Late in the afternoon, we were herded from the shop back to the cell block and the so-called recreation hour, and once again, I was subjected to a severe grilling by my cellmates. Except that it had lost some of its terror, the second night was a repetition of the first, sleep was impossible. Through the night I heard the multitudinous sounds of many women confined in a tiny space, quarreling back and forth, or forming discordant screeching quartets in an effort to ward off as long as possible the specter of the long dreary night. I was told on good authority that the old-timers long ago had learned to pick the locks of their individual cells, and many of them surreptitiously visited friends in other cells, for purposes better guessed at than said. Two tiny windows on the wall opposite the cell block furnished the ventilation for this entire structure. Imagine 140 women living in a space ventilated by these two windows and overheated by badly placed steam pipes, and you will be able to conjure up a picture that resembles the steam room of a Turkish bath, peopled with all the stenches of human existence made nauseating by the persistent odor of disinfectant. During a lull in the noises, I heard one woman, a cell or two away, instructing a neighbor in the art of crocheting. They could not see each other, but one had evidently secured crochet needles and material, and the other was explaining how many stitches it would take per day to finish the collar for her baby back home by Christmas. By dawn, I was more than satiated with my jail experience. 
it seemed to me that another twenty-four hours of this would be impossible. Confident of my ability to reach my friend, the prison official, I survived the night. After breakfast, I sought a means of reaching this influential gentleman. I learned that he had quarreled with his superiors the previous day, and, forgetting about me, resigned. Furthermore, I would have been unable to reach him even if he had remained in his position. To serve the full ten days without sleep or food was beyond my powers of endurance. I began to plan frantically to achieve my release. I bethought myself of my mother, Mrs. O'Neill, who was living with my uncle. I took counsel with the nurse who had been so sympathetic during my supposed illness, without, however, telling her that my crime had been faked. She advised me to go to the matron and explain that I knew of a woman who might pay my fine. Perhaps the matron would notify her. I took an additional twenty-four hours to bring this about. The matron was skeptical, but I insisted that this kind lady had frequently befriended me in the past and might be prevailed upon to do so again. Needless to say, my mother had been disturbed by my continued absence. She knew that I was in jail, but she had expected me to return at the end of the first day. By the third day she was nearly frantic. When the matron phoned to say there was a girl in the house of correction who said she knew Mrs. O'Neill and wanted her to pay the fine, my mother never even waited to find out the name of the criminal. She assured the matron that she would take care of the matter and hastened to the judge. We have often wondered what the matron thought of the pair of us. My release came at the close of the third day, almost seventy-two hours after my entrance. In that time I lost twelve pounds and I was sick with hunger and loss of sleep. As I left, a group of fellow prisoners gathered at the door to wish me good luck. I shall never forget the picture they made. I call them my grey ghosts. Unkempt and drab, they waved me goodbye with a sincere wish that I might stay out and prosper. No one who has not had a similar experience can appreciate the outlook of the criminal serving sentence. To them the world is reversed. Out of prison, we eulogize people in direct ratio to their lack of criminal ability. The criminal idealizes the master crook. The bigger the crime, the higher the social position of the criminal. That is the code of the underworld, and nowhere is the effect of this code more strikingly emphasized than in prison. One loses his perspective on crime. Even with my slender experience, I found myself adopting their viewpoint. If the atmosphere can do that to me in three days, think what it can do in months or years to the confirmed criminal. Of one thing I am convinced, most of the women serving in the Detroit House of Correction were cases of psychopathic care or, at least, expert medical attention. Many of them, I am convinced, could be returned to normal life by proper care and psychological treatment, not physical punishment, but they can never return under the existing conditions. The effect of such an experience on a woman born and bred to a very different place in life is certain to be revolutionary. The girl in manslaughter leads a life of ease and self-gratification up to the time that she goes to prison. Most of the penitentiaries, and especially the women's prisons in New York State, are vastly better than the jail in which I suffered. But this girl must go through that horrible first night in some intermediate city or county jail. That is one moment that is certain to exert a powerful influence upon her, and by comparison with this experience, the actual penitentiary will seem a paradise. I went in search of experience and I found it. I wouldn't go through the same experience again for any amount of money, but I wouldn't sell it for an even greater sum. End of I Have Been in Hell 
or in search of prison knowledge by jeanie mcpherson read by colleen mcmahon